0: Syrian cooking is seasonal cooking. It really is. And, and people live off the land and they preserve their, you know, whatever they brought with them and make do with what they have. And we visited coastal cities, port cities, where they're literally catching fish and
1: asking you how you want them to cook it. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Reem Isil's cookbook, *Arabia* shows that great hospitality is easy to pull off, as long as you have enough pomegranate molasses to go around. In this lively episode, we talk to the Bay Area chef and activist about her inspiring career that has taken her between the kitchen and the community, and sometimes to the poker table. Yes, Reem is a hell of a poker player, and we go into that. We also talk about her za'atar hookup, and how she's crystallizing a pali-cali, that would be Palestinian-California, style of cooking. Get to know Rima Seal a little bit better on this fun episode. Rima Seal, welcome to the Taste Podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: You just did the Today show. I did. So like you ran over <laughs> here after being on National Television Live.
0: The fastest six minutes of my life. <laughs> I don't think it was even six minutes. It was all a blur.
1: What were you cooking?
0: Uh, I was cooking two very iconic dishes that represent my Palestinian and Syrian heritage. The musakhan, which is our yeah. sumac spiced chicken. Uh, you know, every Palestinian has a version of it, connects us to the homeland. And and then muhammara, which is a yeah. fan favorite as well, uh, which is like an Arab romesco and a Syrian staple on any visit so table. <laughs>
1: and, and you went six minutes. Did you have Carson? Did you have Al Roker? Who did you have?
0: Oh, my God. Or oh, whatever. you're gonna embarrass one of, the, me. one of the
1: guys. So we won't yeah, even go. there. No- not the
0: big, not the big ones. <laughs> not, is... not the not the not the varsity team.
1: <laughs> yeah, the university. Well, it still was like.
0: No, they were amazing. Yeah, and they they loved it. And I caught a picture of them noshing on the Mohammad Musakhan after oh. the bit, and I was like, that's a true testament to the
1: food because <laughs> it was not on. They camera. They could not stop
0: eating. Yeah, it was not on camera. I
1: love that behind the scenes. Yeah. I want to start and talk about World Series of Poker. <laughs> so you entered the World Series of Poker.
0: I did. I've competed a few times, yeah.
1: It just wrapped recently.
0: I know. I had a little bit of FOMO. little FOMO. I was, you know, releasing a cookbook and doing all that. Working.
1: But tell me... Working,
0: running two restaurants, having a four-year-old.
1: <laughs> what, what What do you love about poker?
0: You know, I think that poker... There was a time in my life where... You know, poker really allowed me to be whatever I wanted to be. At at the table, you can be any persona and nobody knows you. That sort of an, an anonymity. Mm-hmm. Um, and to play out and to like level the playing field of power uh, that often... Although, ironically, women make 3% of the field. <laughs> That's surprising. I, I know. It's really... I mean, it's wow. a man's spo- uh, sport or yeah. game. Um, yeah. but, but to be able to to excel at it and be in the minority like it just there's there's something really powerful about that um I'm sort of a math nerd Mm -hmm, um I love crunching numbers and uh and it was a psychological uh that the thrill of uh winning or the like downsides of losing being able to control that um it was it's kind of a sadistic (laughs) practice of, uh, you know, mental Olympics. You know, how do you control your emotions? Under
1: pressure. So you're combining yeah. a lot of EQ with IQ. Mm-hmm. You're reading the table. Yeah. Um, and it must translate to your your life as a chef and, and restaurant totally. owner.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like a business in a, in a way. I feel like I am constantly being like, you know, coming up against decisions at Reams, you know, my restaurant. And being like what would i do if i were on mm-hmm. the felt
1: <laughs> on the felt how <laughs> would you- i
0: go all in or would i just fold this hand you know um it's like leveraged risk right it's not yeah. there is gamble to it but it, a lot of times it's like how do you make the optimal decision with not all of the information yep. um and so i think over the years i've gotten less scared to take risk because of playing poker and being able to enact this other side of Ream uh, because I grew up really timid and afraid of risk and, you know, all the things... uh that one goes through, yeah. especially as a woman and a ch- ch- child of immigrants, and all of these Absolutely. things. Absolutely, and
1: you write about it so beautifully in Arabia in your book. I mean, you, the writing is spectacular, and I, we'll get to the, the the writing and the essays and the five mm-hmm. essays that you do. But back to poker, how did you do? <laughs> how did you do in the world of poker? um,
0: I actually my biggest cash was eighteen k. Wow! In a side event, stacks. Um, but yeah, I never <laughs> gotten on the big stage. So my dream is always to you know be able to represent my people on the big stage you know i ESPN if they even still air it now they
1: definitely do they <laughs> and they stream it and it's big business and yeah. and you talked about representing your community totally in your essay when you wrote But I'll take Wars.
0: a brand or a sponsor I mean hey. shameless plug <laughs> <laughs> lo- and Bennett. I'll wear the apron.
1: Do you play? <laughs> out- do you play in card uh, houses in in the Bay Area? Do you go to these yeah. you know, illegal, legal, whatever you want to call them? Yeah.
0: So when I was in this transition from uh, the my nonprofit career, you know, which I talk about yeah. in the book, to trying to figure out what I wanted to do, uh, I took up you know culinary school. Mm. It was you know baking and pastry program, and basically was hustling. I was you know, bartender. I worked at a bakery that was not too far from my local card club. Um, And so I basically started to support myself uh, just playing poker and doing these side hustles as I was learning how to bake. And uh, this was before, you know, back in the time of internet poker,
1: sure um, before it got super regulated yeah
0: well yeah I mean it got shut, shut down. down shut down is you the know word. Yeah. a lot of a lot of people who are playing online um, lost that source of income yeah. so I had to learn how to be in the <laughs> card clubs and face my fear of mm-hmm. you know all of the stigma and the taboo around it and you know made made some some really good friends there mm-hmm. and then You know, when I got too busy running my restaurants, I couldn't, I didn't have time to do it as much as I I, I used to. Uh, But I joined a league and that's how I got into the World Series. Basically, we would just basically pool um, Mm. and then whoever would... Uh, Rank the highest at the end would represent the team
1: on in the in In the the world series in Vegas Yeah in
0: Vegas, so I got to do that three years in a row
1: amazing So you clearly were the best of your league.
0: Eh, Yeah, maybe the luckiest luckily Okay, you're fair
1: (laughs) a little bit of both So you visited Lebanon and Syria in 2010 with your Mm -hmm. father and um, at that time You had not really been to the region in a long time and you talk about rediscovering the foods and, and dining spaces that you had taken for granted and I want to go back to that time in 2010. It seems like a really informative time and instructive time for you as like not just a chef but as a as a person. But like in terms of the food, what were you seeing in these in Lebanon and Syria then that maybe you took and really held with you for forever?
0: Yeah. I think I mean you know, the the big sensory, it's a sensory experience. Anybody who uh, goes to Lebanon or Syria or Palestine or any of these places where food is a central component of the culture, I mean, you could say that about the Mission District of San Francisco sure. or anywhere in New York. Those sights, those, the scents, the smells, the sounds, it was just like, I don't know, it was very transformative. It, uh, I think that it, brought me back to places I hadn't even known because I grew up in a in a suburban town of the U.S.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, outside Boston. <laughs>
0: outside Boston. Yeah. And so, you know, these things that my parents were trying to recreate in the home weren't quite the same thing as they were when you mm. walk off of a plane and all you're hearing is Arabic around you. And, um, you know, I, I feel like Lebanon is like, if you were to describe the smell, it's a little mix of,
1: mm.
0: <laughs> you know, the fresh... Uh, uh, the meat coming off the skewer, mm. the fresh baked bread, maybe a little bit of trash on the street. Motor
1: oil, potentially. Motor oil, diesel, you know. But diesel,
0: It's like that's home, you know.
1: Incredibles. Incredible. <laughs> it's
0: incredible. Um, so I think that was the first piece, that sensory of ex- experience of, you know, experiencing all these things that I didn't as a child. Or, you know, I did. We mm-hmm. visited, but. You you're you're not thinking about these things. But so you in adult, 2010,
1: you were in more of an adult phase soul searching. Yeah. yeah, and I
0: was soul searching, and I was open to anything and everything. I really was lost. You know, I had yeah. imploded essentially in my personal life. I had like mm-hmm. left a long relationship. I was thinking about leaving my career. I didn't know what else to be other than an mm-hmm. organizer. And my parents were confused about what I was doing. And I was estranged from my father at that time. Yeah. So going back to the you know, the lands that my father had memories in and I didn't was very nerve-wracking. So to be able to, like, let your barriers down. yeah. Uh, and I think the f- the food in particular, being in these food spaces, it felt so—it was the first time I felt so alive Amazing. in a very and long were, time. Were
1: you di- dining in the Shouk? Were you dining in a— uh in formal restaurants what was it like yeah
0: i think a, a mix of everything yeah. a lot of it was in the homes oh, honestly wow. yeah, like being in the kitchens yeah um but a lot of it was in the bakeries as cliche as it sounds like you get your daily bread from the bakery nobody is baking their bread at home you, you they have a communal oven in fact a lot of people bring their own dough to the oven to <laughs> the to the baker the baker is part of the family and i was just like i want to be that baker i want to have family so it was ver- It was all the things around that experience that I really loved. The convenience of being able to Mm -hmm. access these food places and them being a part of your daily life. Uh, I was really intrigued by that, wanted to be a part of that, wanted to... I feel like in my organizing days, Mm -hmm. that was the way that I brought people together was through food. So it was like,
1: boom. Yeah, Yeah, I was like, oh, this makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, like
0: this is is my roots. This is where it comes from. Why... Why did I never want to cook or be in the kitchen? It's actually very ingrained in me. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of cultures, I mean, you can't organize people without food. That's like a common... It's
1: very true. <laughs> oh, let's talk about Syria because I, I want to talk about specifically that place, that yeah. country. And, um, you know, Syrian cuisine, I, I, you know, I don't think there is a dish that defines it. So no. I want to ask you what you think of that
0: yeah, question.
1: Because I, I was like, is there a dish that defines Syrian cuisine?
0: It. It is so. Syria is one of the most uh, diverse, uh, multi ethnic, multicultural <laughs> mm-hmm. places that I've ever uh, experienced. And you know, my father is from Damascus, mm-hmm. and I really made a deal with him that if I go, that we were gonna we were gonna really discover the rest of Syria, and I'm so glad that we did because, unfortunately, because of the civil war and uh, the bombardment of people, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of those cities don't exist as they did, Um, but it was a place of refuge for Assyrians, Armenians, Kurds, Turkmen, you know, Iraqis when the Iraq war happened. And it's a convergence of all those cultures that are very distinct when you go from village to village and they're keeping their traditions. But um, it really depends on the terrain if you're on the coastal side. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was really an epiphany for me is that Syrian cooking is seasonal cooking. You know, you go up the coast. It's terroir. It's it's terroir. Yeah. It really is. And and people live off the land and they— preserve their, you know, whatever they brought with them and make do with what they have. Uh, and we visited coastal cities, port cities, where they're literally catching fish and asking you how you want them to cook it.
1: And the book and Erbia really captures um, the seasonality and the diversity of the, of the products available. You have a very large seafood section, and I have to say the bread section – you know, your mastery of baking is is understated. I think you're a James Beard Award nominee winner. And um, honestly, uh, I didn't know that you were such an incredible baker until <laughs> I read you. this book.
0: Yeah, I know. It's funny because I just wanted to be a baker. Like yeah. I literally like just wanted to have my small bakery. Yeah. And when Reams, uh, Reams was going through a little bit of an identity crisis in 2017, I was like, we wanted to open as a bakery. Mm-hmm. But the space that we were in didn't really work for a morning bakery. We just couldn't get that foot traffic and people i think as much as arab cuisine has been part of the fabric of the culinary scene or, you know in in the us it's been highly underrepresented and people wanted it and so yeah. we just started i started adding little things to go with the bread and then all of a sudden i became a restaurateur it's, and i had no idea how to run a restaurant uh you know, I had only up and then new workflows of baking. And- I visited
1: with, with my old boss, Lorena Jones, from Ten Speed, uh, your bakery, uh, or your, your transitional yeah, restaurant. And I yeah. just remember the baked goods really sh- shined. Oh, it was incredible. You. And I was yeah. lucky to visit it at that transition time, I yeah.
0: think. Yeah, yeah it, 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 you know, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because it really expanded my repertoire yeah. <laughs> of cooking. You know, I am a home cook. For the most part, but over the last 10 years really trained with some of the best chefs and I was really lucky. I was part of an incubation program that mm-hmm. really helped me take these, these memories and these skills and translate my baking skills mm-hmm. to my cooking skills. And and then the organizing and, of course, the poker playing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> all know, came together. A, yeah, it
0: all came together. It really prepared me to be an entrepreneur and a leader.
1: The incubator. Let's talk about that. Are there uh, are there other um, restaurants or other you know groups that have come out of the incubator that you want to shout out? Oh, I, I think absolutely. Our listeners, you know, when we visit the East Bay yeah, in particular, I mean, we want to visit Reem, but we wanna also want to yeah, visit other places.
0: So many. I mean, uh, Nyon Bai, Yeah. Uh, that's a Cambodian restaurant that was right around the corner from me. She absolutely. was in my cohort. Um, she's up to a, a lot of big things. I'm really excited for her. Uh, Besharam, um, that's a Gujarati restaurant mm-hmm. in um, the dog patch in San Francisco. You know, Chef Hina really found her voice over the last five years, uh, and she made a very bold decision to make her restaurant completely vegetarian. Mm-hmm. She's vegetarian. That's the food that she loves, and she is just, like, pushing – the envelope of what Gujarati food is and can be. Basharam
1: what a treat have a Gujarati restaurant yeah. near you.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And I, I just love, you know, and I talk about this in the book, all of the women who worked in that kitchen and how badass they were. Yeah. You know, I feel like they were some of the best teachers that I had. It's like, whoa, you're like, you know, you have seven employees from Nepal and you're busting out 30,000 momos a day. You know, uh, Beanie's Kitchen is another one of those. And I'm like, I want to be that, you know, so that they were... Definitely the businesses that I strived when I was in that commercial kitchen. It's like, how can I get that big?
1: Love that Arabia. Can you explain the title a little bit for? Yeah. And I think it relates to what you just yeah. said about your cohort at the at totally. incubator.
0: Yeah. So Arabia translates into Arab woman. Yeah. Um, or all things feminine, really. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was a reclamation uh, of my narrative. I think that. There are all sorts of tropes or stereotypes or things or images that people mm-hmm. have when they think of Arab woman. And I wanted to take all of that, turn it up on its head a little bit and to— you know, really uh, push people's assumptions about. Well, it, who there's I am.
1: probably a very cliche, monolithic way of looking at Arab women. Yeah, and totally. You're smashing yeah. that, a totally. Arab woman is an organizer. Yeah, an Arab woman is a chef. Yeah, not just a home cook, right? Not just a home cook. Right. Yeah, exactly. Business She's a poker owner, player,
0: <laughs> poker player. <laughs> um, she has a complicated relationship to the kitchen. You know, uh, she. Uh, And then particularly being in diaspora, I mean, the subtitle, Mm -hmm. that was like a really interesting, we were going back and forth. Should we use the word diaspora in here? And I didn't know that it was such a controversial word. Uh, Mm. And, you know, the feedback I was getting was like, oh, that's sad. And I'm like, actually, it's not sad to me. Like being in diaspora is a very powerful thing. Yes, it's sad. You know, we may never be able to go back to our homelands, but we've created home away from home. Mm -hmm. We've extended that homeland beyond borders, uh, and we've expanded the notion of what home could be. And I think that that is diaspora and any culture. That's what we're trying to do. And I think that that is what this story is trying to tell is that you can't put me in a box like I'm not— that the Arab identity is a fluid identity, Absolutely. and it's intersectional with all my experiences. Yeah,
1: and you write that so clearly. Let's talk about the diaspora in the United States, because yeah. you traveled a lot for the book and also just in your general research and writing. Where are you seeing the strongest presence or hearing the strongest voices of the Ooh. Arab diaspora in America? I think our listeners uh, travel a lot, but we sometimes don't think about yeah. areas.
0: It's it's so interesting going on this book tour. Yeah. Now I've, you know, traveled to a lot of places and I was really trying to pick markets that were, un, you know, not the New York or L.A. or, you know, San yeah. Francisco, but like Texas and yeah. South Carolina and like some of these less uh, visited spaces and there are Arabs everywhere.
1: Amazing. Talk <laughs> about that. What are, like, where, where it are, are we just, seeing like, this? It's just
0: like so exciting. Like, you know, I was in... Uh, Austin for a barbecue festival and we had a, uh, cookbook event at Lenoir, um, really amazing folks yeah. who recreated Arabia and I'm like, oh, yes, wow. this is what I wanted to, this is what I wanted. And there was this, a family, it was a Southern gentleman, but his wife, uh, her father was Palestinian. Um, And all of their kids uh, were really proud of their Palestinian heritage. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't know unless I talked to them. Um, And the first thing they talked about was mensaf, which is this iconic Palestinian Jordanian Mm. um, dish, all all Palestinians. It's a rite of passage to eat Mm. it. It's like slow braised lamb with a really amazing yogurt sauce on rice. And that's the language. Uh, like, oh, you're one of you're, us. You understand. You understand. You it, so yeah. that was really endearing. Um, I'm really inspired, and I talk talk about a few places in the book, places like Dearborn and Detroit mm-hmm. and um, some of these urban areas where Arabs are really keeping uh, their culture alive, some parts of suburban Chicago. Yeah. Uh, I, I miss I miss the East Coast for that. I think that there are concentrations, but because of – uh, gentrification and the expensive cost of living, people are getting pushed out more and more. Mm-hmm. And so in San Francisco, the home of Pal- Arabs and Palestinians are the liquor stores <laughs> and yeah. the corner stores, you know. They're Mahal kids, we call them. Mahal is like the corner store.
1: Oh. They grow
0: up in the corner store, but they're like living in the suburbs.
1: I would so read a, a, a story about the corner store kids growing yeah. up in the bodegas and the yes. corner stores and the party stores, depending on what you call them. Yep. I think that's Michael so kids. fascinating. Yeah,
0: wow. that's 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 who Palestinians are in San Francisco. And do
1: you watch Rami? Yes. So East Coast yeah. identity really captured by the show Rami, which totally. I think needs to be. And also, you know, the show The Bear is a lot of the a team from Rami made yes. The Bear. Yes.
0: Let's shout, out shout out Rami. Shout out. Shout out to the team who made Rami. Like <laughs> I know some of the writers cool. on that, um that series, and yeah, they just did an amazing job of not. You know, showing three-dimensional but not falling into the tropes too yeah. much. You know, it's it's a, it's a fine line because um, you want to entertain folks. And, you know, there are some realities and contradictions in our culture, all mm-hmm. cultures. Uh, and how do you do that for a mainstream audience? So they did a really good job. I think that's job. terrific.
1: I'll link to that show in the show notes. I wanted to ask you about misperceptions about Palestinian-Syrian cuisine because mm-hmm. I think— we talk about, um, of course, you are speaking to the Arab community, mm-hmm. but you're also speaking to folks who, may, who have no idea. Totally. So let's let's clear up one Some or two misconceptions. items. Misconceptions. Yeah, I feel like yeah. you're here on the show, so let's talk about yeah.
0: it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I still get it to this day. Uh, people balking at you know the seven dollar manouche mm-hmm. um, that we serve at Reims that was, you know, forty eight hour fermented sourdough. Yeah. <laughs> With za'atar imported from Jordan with really good California olive oil that took a lot of hands to make it. And they're like, no, this is Arab street food. It Mm. should be cheap food, you know. And so I think that is a big one that um, Arab cuisine is somehow unhealthy and it's just fried shawarma, falafel. It's like street food. It's not meant to be. "Quote unquote elevated," (laughs) but like my grandmother (laughs) could like do circles around some of these Michelin star chefs. You know, the methodologies (laughs) are very sophisticated. They are long held traditions. You know, just because they're oral, we don't. They're they're understated. But we have books, cookbooks that date back to the 13th century about Mm -hmm. some of the methodologies, and they're amazing. Uh, So that's one. I think that. You know, that it's like unsophisticated and $7 actually.
1: seems like a bargain for yeah. what you just explained. Yeah,
0: totally. And we try to make our food really, really accessible. Yeah. I, I think that is something that we grapple with, mm-hmm. but the people to complain are usually the people who can afford it. So mm-hmm. there's that. Um, I think uh, a lot of people say, oh, your food is like with a California twist. And oh, gosh. Yes, there, you know, I'm using California ingredients because that's it's place, right? I'm mm-hmm. honoring place that I'm in. But that's how Arabs cook. We yeah. cook, you know, with ve- we're very vegetable forward. Um, all of our food is localized. We are a rural people, actually, mm-hmm. at our at the heart of it. But because of colonization and occupation, mm-hmm. we've been detached uh, mm-hmm. from the land and being able to cook our own food ways. So um, I think those are the big ones. Uh, but certainly... The expansiveness that you know—we cook everything from seafood to
1: see. That's something when you look at the recipe list. You see a lot of seafood. You see whole fish. You see shrimp. You see lots of shellfish. Yeah, and of course, if you visited the region, you know, of course, there's plenty of seafood. But many listeners might think it's a desert region. Yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, and there are certainly parts of the desert you know they they have their own foods but it's yeah. it's also not a monolith right exactly. there are you know what i call southwest asia north africa i try to really call it what it is like you know north africa has a very different terrain and they mm-hmm. have different cultures that you know the the french colonized with the indigenous berber population and and so that food is going to be influenced by that In um, the levant i guess what the french and the british Came and just cut up arbitrarily, you know. You're going to have a lot of intermixing, but then isolation because of isolation, people just have their own ways mm-hmm. of cooking things, and then you have the Gulf that interacts, you know, with um, parts of South Asia. Boats, and, yeah, boats, yeah, from exactly, all over, yeah. all over, and so all of that food, you know, it, it is, it is dictated by place and and terrain.
1: Let's talk about your za'atar because you're talking about (laughs) Jordanian za'atar. Like, how are you getting your za'atar? Is it uh, through suitcases? Are suitcases involved? Are are shipping? No
0: suitcases. I I don't think that the health department would allow that. We can talk offline about that. Um, We are like, my dream is actually to Grow uh, my own zatar farm. Yeah. We, we've been working on that project for a long time, but there's just too many projects. Yeah, um, but we have a Palestinian uh, family that we work with that procure um, from a local farm in Jordan, and uh, you know it it is hard. It's like it's the one thing that is not localized. Absolutely and not, and
1: it's hard to find really uh, you know fresh, fresh products exactly. here in the states. Most in of the, the stuff supply on the shelf- chain.
0: Is right now with the supply chain, people are like stretching out their zatar. We have a special, I'm a, I'll shout out my friends at Burlap and Barrel. Wonderful company. Uh, spice company that is just really, really um, amazing at procuring spices, but doing so ethically. And um, they have Palestinian zatar from Janine, but we did our own spice mix and we're coming out with a spicy zatar.
1: Oh. Which What's the flavor profile?
0: Um we're we're using uh, red fresno chilies oh, from cool. um our red jalapeños from Santa Cruz. Oh, nice. So a little bit of pali Cali. Yeah, um, yeah. and then uh, the Palestinian uh, za'atar leaf from Janine and uh, uh, their cured sumac, of course, and then bene seeds from Anderson Mills. So just a little mix of all of it. I and, like a sumac yeah.
1: heavy zatar personally. Yeah. I love yeah. sumac in general, but yeah. when it leans that direction with yeah. the lemony— Yeah, especially
0: good sumac. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't give you heartburn.
1: Oh, wow. I've had it—yeah. I just like the lemon, the, the brightness yeah. to sumac is yes. so beautiful. Yes. I would like to talk about al pastor because right mm-hmm. now um, listeners may not actually realize um, that al pastor is, is, is certainly a, a, a tradition of Mexican cuisine, and we, we've certainly had it around the States or in Mexico— but many may not realize that it comes from Lebanon, and around the 1900s, ni- yeah. there's a real history, and you write about it in your book. So let's, let's actually yeah. talk about that.
0: Yeah, I was really fascinated by Arabs all over the world and how they've impacted the cuisine around them and, you know, t- was doing a lot of research and— Come to to find out that a lot of Lebanese and I guess Syrian at the time mm-hmm. um, under the were fleeing the Ottoman Empire and then World War One when the French uh, came in um, and fled to different parts of Central and South America and one being Mexico and um, Lebanese in and to places like Puebla, uh, yeah. Mexico City, uh, and with them they brought the lamb shawarma but lamb wasn't readily available or cost effective in Mexico so they. Uh, adapted that to pork. In fact, I said to say it's the one thing that Mexicans took and made even better.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I- I- I'll, I'll take. I'll take a. a plus and their chiles, taco. of course. Yes. You know,
0: like the um, the flavor profile of chiles. We didn't have that as much. So, uh, yeah. That uh, there are still parts of Mexico City that I visited. They have tacos arabe.
1: So yeah.
0: They literally call it uh, Arab tacos, where you know our flatbreads, the 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 wheat. Um, flour tortillas mm-hmm. with um, a a version you know, they call it Donaraki. and yeah. I think it's from Doner
1: mm, which don, is the, the, yeah, the,
0: uh, the shawarma in yeah. Turkey, what they mm-hmm. call it and uh, Iraqi maybe I don't know where that word comes from but they have the flavor profiles from the Arab world on them that's cool yeah, so it's, it was really fun uh, to discover that and they had something called the gringa <laughs> la gringa, because it's Ordered like a quesadilla American style, and that became a menu item on Reeves, at Reeves, California. We do like a a take on the birria.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you should should, birria. Everybody. Everybody is. That's what you do in restaurants. (laughs) You want to hit trends.
0: Exchange and um, inspiration. And I think that kind of exchange is a perfect example of organic exchange, right? Um, so yeah I'm really and and also a lot of my cooks are from Mexico and Central America I was going to so ask being about that I was able to have their hands on the food and be inspired by it and you know give their own little take I on it I love that
1: cuz yeah you you have you have Mexican uh, staff yeah. you know from Me- Me- with Mexican yeah. heritage in yeah. your kitchen Yeah What's family meal like at Reams, California these days? Oh, my God. It's
0: amazing. Yeah. (laughs) It's a a lot of tacos, I want (laughs) to say. But you can take anything and everything from Mm -hmm. the Reams menu and put it on a taco because it's essentially bread. Uh, A lot of salsas. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it's it's lovely. We have an ilote manoushe right now on the seasonal menu, and it's basically like roasted corn with... Uh, a harissa crema. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Is so, this the Mission, right? Yeah. With yeah. cotija cheese. And, oh, yeah. I can't
1: wait to... So you have your location the Mission? And yes. And you have a to-go location too?
0: Uh, we do. We have a location that uh, sells wholesale to grocery mm. stores and oh, then cool. catering. And we are working on being back in Oakland to serve customers. Back in but Oakland. But that, uh, that was a hardship of the pandemic is really having to... Uh, uh, I hate that word pivot, but like Uh, make some hard decisions, you know, uh, we opened three days before the pandemic Mm. in our mission location and, you know, had this restaurant in Oakland that we loved, um, but couldn't survive in, uh. You still as have the a, lease, as a restaurant, though? no. We uh, we actually sold it to Crystal Weipepa, okay, who also co- came out of La Cucina and was a yeah. uh, contender for emerging chef at the James Beard Awards. So amazing! She's an indigenous chef. She's an amazing cook, and I just felt like very serendipitous mm-hmm. to pass the torch of that place to another woman of color. She grew up in the neighborhood, so
1: I love yeah. to hear that. Let's talk about Maluba. Yes, Maluba. The the cover image of the M- Maluba. Yeah, it's really striking and I love seeing process on cookbook covers. Yes, and, convivial. Yeah, like you're, it's a party scene. I got to ask about the behind the scenes. Did yeah. you nail that in the first take?
0: Oh, my goodness. Yes, actually. <laughs> I, I feel like we did because it wasn't actually a contender for the cover. Yeah. We were looking at other, mm-hmm. uh, you know, other fun shoots. Uh, mm-hmm. at, but I felt like all of the other food shots and my genre of cookbooks are that cliche bread or, you know, the whole fish. And we were going to make it more fun, but I felt like this, this was a real party. It was like all of like my coworkers and we were just all sitting there. And it really is that uh, suspense of lifting up the pot. It's like so nerve wracking. Yeah, it's nerve wracking. Even for you. Yeah. Yeah. And. And what I loved about that was it's like old school meets new school. It's really about celebrating everybody at the table. You see all different shades. Yeah. And, you know, people represented on that, that cookbook. I'm using a, you know, hot orange La Crusette <laughs> pot. You know, all the things uh, yeah. that really make it accessible and hopefully captured that spirit of like we're all here to to celebrate um, that is the spirit in which I cook. I, obviously I love food and I care about food, but I really care about people the most. I love,
1: I love that image. It's such, a, it's like one of my favorite covers of Thank the past you. year. It, no, you're welcome. It's Thank great. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Yo, that's a shout out to Ilan, Alana Hale. She's yeah. really nailed shout it.
1: Shouts. Uh, I love the story of your aunt and uncle. So, mm. you know, she's Jewish. Your uncle's uh, family is from Beirut. And, you know, you write very much about how individuals transcend ethnic makeup. Yes. Right? And I and I just and especially their their cooking also was different. You know, like he his was pretty exacting. He said yes, he made he's this. A <laughs> he's a scientist, and hers is a little more improv.
0: Yeah, she was a hippie from Humble.
1: <laughs> I love her story. She's a hippie from Humble and 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 married a Lebanese
0: A Palestinian Palestinian yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. Um,
1: so let's talk about their that yeah. dynamic of having, you know, a Jewish aunt and then having um, your uncle come yeah. together in your life.
0: Yeah, from a very young age, too. I think it was forever my... Like, this was normal. Um, but I think as an adult, you get pushed into these silos of identity. Uh, it's yeah. a very, very American thing, I think, too. Yeah, it these is. kind of like identity politics and <laughs> I want to put you in a box. And
1: We're, we, we're a bunch of baseball cards. Yeah, people. yeah. yeah. It's, and, it's rough.
0: Um, And and not to say there aren't, you know, hardships of... of you know, uh, their experiences are very different in the world. but uh, for people to really connect on their values of justice, however they found social justice, like, and I talk about this like my grand uh, my aunt overcame uh you know, growing up in a Zionist household, mm-hmm. you know, and what that took for her to unlearn some of these mm-hmm. things and you know, that people are dynamic and they're ever growing and changing. and she, She saw my evolution uh, from a scared, ambiguously brown girl trying to make my way in a very white suburb of Boston uh, to who I was when I came to California, when I was at the depths (laughs) of my despair of who I was. And for her and my uncle, really, their love for... Uh, justice, but their love for appreciating the small things in life. Those ingredients combined were a perfect recipe. It's a for special my
1: relationship that you write yeah, about. Yeah, and like and it's complicated too. It it's is a complicated very complicated.
0: complicated. Yeah. And my um, you know, by day we were like going to these uh you know, we were working in nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. By night we were going to these anti-war meetings and then eating. Mm-hmm. And then in the weekends, we were hiking. It was just like all these different experiences of California. So I feel like my political awakening was with my um, the awakening of my body through food happening all at the same time. And they were—I don't know if they devised it together or if it was coordinated, but— they put together the perfect.
1: They figured plan. out. You talk about Trojan horse. Yeah. You talk about bringing yeah. you into why they're like, here's
0: our world. This yes. is why we came to San Francisco. You know, share that with us.
1: You write about anti war protests. You write about getting clubbed on a bridge. <laughs> yes. I mean, this is your like, you know, having a lawyer's number on it, scrawled across your arm. Yes. Um.
0: It's very exhilarating. It's, you know, when you feel power, especially as someone who didn't feel like they had power. It's a very powerful thing. It's what attracted me to organizing mm-hmm. uh, is f- for me to actually, I guess I got organized now that I come to think about yeah.
1: it. <laughs> organizing got you organized. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, my, my, my aunt and uncle really organized yeah. me, you know. Oh, my goodness.
1: <laughs> it took some organizers to organize your yeah. life. I guess that makes sense yeah. in the title. And, you know,
0: my aunt helped me write this book. And she, yeah. That was that was a hard experience to have to, go back to those moments and relive those moments and how she saw it versus I saw it and how we got stories from other parts of the family. It was helpful to to yeah. have, but to, to, to write this book with a family member, I think we learned a lot about each other. It must have been very
1: cathartic to have somebody there and re- reliving these memories of protest and yes. and violence. yeah. And you write about mental health, yes. too. And I think that's something that maybe if you haven't read the text of your book and you've just looked at the recipes, which is fair. A lot of people do that. But, like, read this book. Everyone, like, r b a is a wonderfully written book. Like, oh, I love it. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. And, and I wanted to
0: really, I was like, if I have one shot um, to share with people, what is the experience of being Arab in America? I have to be as honest yeah. and as straightforward as I, or vulnerable, I guess, as I could because I wanted other people to have the permission to be vulnerable mm-hmm. themselves, so nobody's perfect. My journey wasn't linear; it still isn't. Yeah. Um, but hopefully, this book really captured the different iterations of
1: Reem. Yeah, <laughs> as she made her way to 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 where I am. To now. where you are today, and then into the future, and and in the epilogue, you you cover your partnership with Daniel Patterson and uh, Diafa, right? And, and what, uh, ended up dissolving, you know? And you're right. Honestly, it doesn't feel like there's vendetta there, but you're honest about something that just did not work out. And the question is, is how, why did it not work out?
0: Yeah. I, I always say this with Reams, that the success of Reams was that I could be a hundred percent me at Reams, you know, if I was going to come out, um, and do this, I have to, I have to share with the world all parts of myself and really live my vision and values. And the ethos of my restaurants that I owned and had control over really lived out, you know, and that we lived by it and died by it sometimes. But at least, you know, we're living by our values. Um, I think that being able to showcase your cuisine to the world was really wonderful, but it was holding up status quo. I didn't necessarily have control... Um, over the very things that actually were the most important to me. Like I said, food is really important, and it's important to showcase, and visibility was absolutely important. Um, But how my restaurant runs, how the people are treated, that world of fine dining didn't really allow for that. And so to be a masthead for something that didn't really represent me fully didn't feel right. I wanted to be part of projects that really... Yeah. challenge status quo and i felt like i was in a way upholding some status quo um, well
1: if you write about the struggle of, of upholding a status quo of, of having a, a fine dining and all yeah. the tropes that go along with fine dining and also the identity of, of you and, and daniel yeah. who's the chef yeah. you know you write about very vividly um my question the follow-up is can there can you do a fine dining restaurant
0: I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. I, every once in a while, That's have a this, like, word. little inkling. It's, like, someone who's, like, I'm never going to get pregnant again. Right. And then, like, has a baby. But yes. um, every <laughs> once in a while. But then when I, like, walk into my friend's restaurants and I see, like, 120 seats, I have, like, PTSD from the Diafa days. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we had a busy restaurant. It was really, you know, it's everything you could have asked for and it still didn't work. Yeah. And so I just think that the restaurant model in in general is... Is a very tough model. And, you know, I feel like there's other ways to showcase my food and have people feel that experience. And I feel like this cookbook was one of those ways. So, yeah, yeah I think a big fine dining restaurant, probably not. But maybe if I found the right partners who knew what they were doing.
1: Because mm-hmm. it was <laughs> such a well reviewed restaurant. There was like a lot of great press totally, for it. And it yeah. was a big was, moment for you. It was
0: a moment to shine. And I feel very proud of what I built. Like, I do not take away any yeah. of that hard work. I literally, had a child and two weeks later opened a very busy restaurant. Uh, So (laughs) I, yeah, shout out to, you know, all the people who really uh, sweated that out with me because, you know, the world was not kind to us (laughs) at that
1: time. We asked all guests in the Taste podcast if you could write a dream cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you would have no deadline, or budget, meaning you'd have unlimited funds to to make this book happen. What What would that book be?
0: I think I would build off of this thing and just explore Arabs in every part of the world. Yeah. Arabs in diaspora, like kind of like Anthony Bourdain-esque, like how do they impact the foodways around them and how do those foodways impact them? Mm -hmm. I just really love the stories behind that. Um. Yeah, I'm fascinated, and I want to travel to and to go back to the place of origin of those dishes. And yeah, yeah, just like a little weaving of time and space.
1: Yeah, with a big
0: travel budget.
1: Yeah. Well, of course, we're talking about you could definitely get your own (laughs) travel covered. So, is there a country that you feel maybe could be represented? Fascinated
0: by. Uh, I would definitely like to go to different parts of uh, South America, Colombia, Chile. Mm. There are. Five, over 500,000 Palestinians in Chile they have Palestinian flags everywhere yeah. they're really like I'm just so fascinated That's, with that area you know going I, I mean I want to discover other parts of Lebanon yeah. go to different parts of Palestine that I haven't been to uh, yeah so the
1: sky's the limit Rima Saleh thank you for joining the Taste Podcast
0: thank you for having me
1: The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.